0: All right, all right. Let's go ahead and get started. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody this morning? Beautiful, beautiful day out there, gorgeous. Um, let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get things started with the class this morning. Welcome, visitor. We have visitors from California. They've come that far, you know. <laughs> oh man, there you go. <laughs> let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we just uh, ask your blessing upon this day. Father, we thank you for just such a glorious day out. and Father, we're th- so uh, thankful for the Adams to be with us today and just, uh, uh, just the time we get to enjoy them. And so, Father, we just ask your blessing upon this day as we celebrate what you've done here for, for 100 years. And so we're just, uh, we just want to give you the glory for everything that happens. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. Today, we're going to, uh, and this is going to be probably the first part of two classes on this particular topic. We are going to look at Jesus basically uh, combating the forces of darkness, Uh, the idea of spiritual warfare and the supernatural nature of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Today, uh, at, we're titling this class uh, "Laying Siege to the Gates of Hell," and you'll see why you know that title when we get to it. Before, however, we look at at Jesus's life and ministry, I want to talk about a topic uh, that that scholars call cosmic geography. We've talked a little bit about it already. We've we've kind of woven it, woven it, it, woven it in there uh, a little bit, and and you know we talked about. Kind of gardens and mountains as the places that, that, that God's lived and, and uh, you know, the, the, how the presence of Yahweh makes something holy. I want you to think back to the Ten Commandments. I, I reference that a lot because it's such a good visual for so many people. How many of you have ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments? Raise your hand. All right. Some of you, I can tell I'm getting old because there's now a few in the room who have not seen it, uh, and so, you know, it, 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 time is passing. But there's a scene in there where Moses uh, encounters a burning bush. And I'm sure you guys, you know, those of you who've seen it, you all know the scene. Those of you who haven't seen it, you've hopefully heard it in Sunday school class or whatever, Moses in the burning bush. Remember, as he approaches the burning bush, what the, he hears this voice out of the bush, and the bo- v- bush tells him to take off his sandals because the place you are on is holy ground, okay? That is the concept of cosmic geography. It does not mean there was anything particularly special about that spot. Before the burning bush, 100 years before that burning bush, nothing was special about that place. 10 minutes before the burning bush, nothing was particularly special about that place. The reason that place was special, the reason it was holy ground, is because Yahweh was in that place. He was in that bush, you know, the kind of a visible personification of Yahweh. And Old Testament scholars talk about the visible and the invisible Yahweh. That really, the, the whole concept of the Trinity is, is woven a little bit in there, but people, you know, didn't really see it. But there was this idea that Yahweh was invisible, he was God, he was a spirit, but sometimes he would take on physical form. And there was a visible and an invisible Yahweh. So that idea already existed in the Jewish mindset coming up to the time of Christ. And so you had this this visible manifestation of Yahweh in a burning bush, and because that manifestation was there, it made the ground holy ground. The presence of God, the presence of Yahweh, makes that ground holy ground. That's the idea of cosmic geography. Think about the camp of Israel. It's where God came to indwell with his people, to live with his people. The tabernacle was holy. That's the the whole idea of the holy of holies and the separation that existed. How as you progressed closer to where Yahweh would be, the tabernacle got holier and holier as you moved into it until ultimately you had a place that only the high priest could go into once a year because it was the holiest place. Again, it's that concept of where Yahweh is, it is holy. The land he chose for his people, he, you know, he declared to be his land. And we've talked about the sons of God and how, you know, and, and God kind of divvying out the, the, the lands of the nations to the sons of God. Uh, but Israel would be his portion, they would be his people, and he would use them to win the other people back to him. So there's this idea, and there's another th- term that, that, that Old Testament scholars talk about called realm distinction. It's the idea that, that, that there's distinct realms. There's Yahweh's place, his portion, his holy ground. Then there's the outside. And think of how often that idea comes up you know, with Israel you know, as the people who are outside of, of, of the inheritance of God. If you want a great kind of visualization of this in the Old Testament, there's probably none better than a guy named Naaman. I don't know how many of you know who Naaman was, but I'd like you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to look just briefly at the story of Naaman because it will drive home this concept of cosmic geography of something being sacred, sacred because of Yahweh's presence where everything outside of that is not. Look at 2 Kings 5, verses 15 through 19. Now let me give you a little bit of a background of the story here. Naaman was, was a Syrian, okay? He, he was a pagan. He was not, you know, not, not a believer in Yahweh. He, you know, and, and he was very high up. He was kind of like second in command to, to the king, Uh, in Syria, but he suffered from leprosy. He contracted leprosy and and he was desperate and he heard of the miracles that were being done in Israel, uh, particularly by the prophet Elisha, okay, the successor to Elijah. He had heard of the miracles and so he goes to Israel and he asked the prophet Elisha to heal him. Well, Elisha won't even come out to speak to him. You know, it kind of makes it you know, clear, uh, you know, hey, you're from that other realm. But he he will agree to help him, but he doesn't need to speak to him or do anything like that to help him. He sends his servant out, and his servant tells him, just go dip in the Jordan River three times. Well, he gets angry because the, the river in Syria, he says, is far cleaner than the Jordan. Why would... Why would Elisha told him to dip in the Jordan River three times. Not because it's the cleanest, certainly not. But it's God's river, it's in God's place. He's, te- he's going to teach Naaman a very important you know, concept here. So Naaman's not going to do it. He's, he's angry, he's not going to do it. And finally, his servants convince him look, you've come this far, you, you, you're desperate. You, you, what, what, what can it hurt? And he goes and he dips himself in the Jordan River and he comes out and he's clean. And it's like, oh man. And and his reaction immediately to that is there's no other God in the world except for Yahweh. Isn't it interesting how the dipping in that river taught him that there's only one true God. And that's Yahweh. Let's pick up the story in verse 15. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him and Naaman said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Egypt, except in, in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. So he goes and he finds Elisha, goes back to his house, and this time Elisha actually comes out and speaks to him. And he says, I've realized that there's really no true God. Now he's not saying there's not any other, you know, things that people worship. In fact, he's gonna point that out himself here in a minute. But there's only one God that's really the true God, the creator God of all things. There's only one real Yahweh, real true God. And he realizes that now. So he's like, let me pay you for this. Well, Elisha's not gonna take any money for doing this. But Elisha, Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gift. So basically, give up. Don't even try to give me any, any money for this. I won't take it. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. And I want you to know what, notice what Naaman does next. Then Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me, From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. What? He wants two mulefuls of dirt. Why does he want that? Because of cosmic geography. Because the place that Yahweh is makes that place holy. Holy. Just like the river was holy, the river wasn't clean, it wasn't pristine, it wasn't better than their river, but it was Yahweh's river. This is Yahweh's prophet, this is Yahweh's land, and he now understands that. There's no place on earth like where Yahweh is at. And I want to worship Yahweh, and so to worship him, to feel like I'm really truly worshiping him as As I want to, I need to take some of this place back with me. We don't know what he was gonna do with it. Probably spread it out in his hut so he could kneel down and his knees could be on holy ground while he worshiped Yahweh. Folks, that's the concept of of cosmic geography. You guys get it? Now this does not mean that Yahweh was not the creator of all things, not the God of all things. We understand that but Yahweh had given control over to these other beings for a period of time. I want you to think of something. Go back forward now to the New Testament. What are some of the names that we, that not, we don't give them to, to Satan? The Bible gives them to Satan. The prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. Why do you think it says things like that? Does that mean that God's not in control? Of course it doesn't mean God's not in control but it means this realm outside of, of God's people is Satan's for a period of time. That's what it means. It's again, it's, that, it's just that, that idea of, you know, of cosmic geography carried over into the New Testament that's gonna play a huge role in the, in the first story we read today in the life of Jesus. So everybody with me, you get that kind of concept of cosmic geography. You know, real quickly, I just wanna point out a couple things. We looked at this already a few weeks ago, but I wanna go back there because it'll help this to make more sense. Look at Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. And then verses 20 and 21. So, uh, and remember, Daniel's been visited by an angel and the angel's you know, gonna deliver a message to him, very important message. But the angel has something startling to say that that held him up for 21 days. Then he said, Don't be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before God. Your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer. But for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels Which means chief prince, by the way. One of the chief princes came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now I am here to explain what will happen to your people in the future, for this vision concerns a time yet to come. If you jump down to verses 20 and 21, he is now kind of signing off, if you will. He's telling, you know, hey, uh, you know, telling Daniel, I'm going to leave now, I'm going to go back. Notice what he says. He replied, do do you uh, know why I have come? Soon I I must return to fight against the the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. And after that, the spirit prince of of the kingdom of Greece will come. You notice, they each have their own prince. Their own spiritual ruler is what it's saying. And his fight is against them. You know, he, he fights against them. They oppose God and God's people. And this angel fights for God against this. It's spiritual warfare that's going on kind of behind the scenes that we don't see. Let's, um, I wanna read something before we look at, at the life of Jesus. I wanna read something in Acts 17 real quickly. Something that Paul, Paul makes a reference to this. In his, on his uh, missionary journeys. Act, or Acts 17, verses uh, 26 and 27. This is Paul in Athens, speaking to the Athenians. And he says, from one man, he, he's speaking about God here, from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God created them all. He divvied them all up. He gave them their places and their times with the idea that, uh, you know, his plan is to bring them back to him someday. Remember, that's what he told Abraham, that you will be a blessing to all people. That all people will be blessed through what I do through you, Abraham. And now Paul's telling the Athenians that God wants everybody to kind of feel for him and grope for him. It's the idea of being blind, being in a dark place, in a cave with the lights out, trying to find your way out. And he said, God's not far from any of us, and if you grope around enough, you may find him. You know, if you search enough, because God wants essentially to be found, you know, Again, it's that idea of cosmic geography. So now let's, let's turn to the life of, of Christ. And I apologize, I know I'm moving quickly and, and that's just going to be the nature, I'm afraid, today of this because we have a lot of ground to try to cover. I, I don't want to explore this, but I just want us to think about it as we kind of move into the life of Christ. Just think, it, we're, we're a very short time away from Christmas. Part of the birth narrative of Christ and the time leading up to it is, is spiritual warfare. It is Satan motivating Herod to try to kill Jesus at the moment of his birth, or, or shortly after the moment of his birth. How Herod has all the children, two and under, you know, murdered in order to, to try to stop Jesus. Herod doesn't know why he's doing it. He's doing it for his own crazy jealousy reasons. He doesn't want another king coming up. Herod, by that point, is, is not just borderline insane. saying he's far past the border. I mean, he is. History tells us that. But behind all of that, Satan has his reasons. You know, and and I don't believe Satan knew how God was going to save humanity through Jesus. I think if he knew that, he'd have never killed him. I mean, Satan's not dumb, but he knew Jesus was the one, and he knew that somehow he was going to do something that was going to defeat him. See, it seems clear to us, but you got to remember, we're reading into it backwards. We already know the outcome, so we're reading it. And it, it, why do they understand that? But yet, the smartest people in Israel didn't understand it. They knew their Bible far better than than any us, any of us, really do in the Christian era. I mean, that's just the honest truth. But they didn't get it because God had kind of veiled a lot of it. You know, I mean, hey, this is spiritual warfare here. He's not, you know, so you know. Satan would have never killed Christ if he'd have known, but he knew Jesus was important. He knew he was the son of God. He knew this was it, he just didn't know how. So he figured if well, I can kill him, if I can get rid of him, I can win. You know, And he tried from the moment of his birth. But I wanna focus beginning here on, on, on his baptism. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 uh, through uh, chapter 4, verse 2. But Jesus comes to, to John to be baptized in the Jordan. And John argues with him Look, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus, yes, I know, but just allow it. it it's what's necessary. So Jesus is baptized by John. And he comes up out of the water and an incredible moment happens, like a moment where you get that personification of the Trinity all in one kind of place. God splits the heavens, the Bible tells us, parts them. A dove comes down, lands on Jesus, and we find that that is the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and we hear the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That term beloved is an, an important term because it, it essentially is like, it, it's, it's kind of like uh, singling him out as the successor, as the one, the beloved. It's the same term actually that, that God used of Solomon when Solomon was born. After David and Bathsheba and, and all the sin and the death of their baby, And there's that fear on their part. Will God ever accept us? And they have another child, and they have Solomon, and God calls him my beloved. He says, You are my beloved. The line will continue through you. Okay? Well, now he is calling Christ publicly my beloved. This is the one. It's kind of like God putting a a flag in the ground. Here he is. This is the one. So he, he's baptized, and you have this wonderful imagery, and a lot of a lot of, uh, of scholars see a lot of imagery of the Exodus in this moment. The, the parting of the sky, just like the parting of the Red Seas. You know, how now you know, in the Exodus, God took Israel, who he called his son during the Exodus, and he brought them out of Egypt, bringing, taking them through the wilderness into a promised land. Okay, and all the things that happened there and we'll talk about that more here in a second. Now you have God not parting a sea, but parting the skies, taking his son, and and bringing him out into the wilderness. And that temptation of Christ is what we really wanna focus on. Look at, starting at verse 13, I wanna just read briefly the story of the baptism, and then move into the temptation. And Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. And so why are you coming to me? And Jesus said, it it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened. Uh, You know, some some, uh, manuscripts read, open to him, uh, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him, and a voice in heaven uh, said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Notice the very next thing that happens. Remember, your Bible had no verses or chapters for the, you know, hundreds of years. It literally is the next thought. Leads straight into it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the what? The wilderness. Led into the wilderness to be tempted, it says, by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. Now I want to just stop right there for a second before we we move on. Jesus moves, the, the Spirit of God moves him into the wilderness. Now you have to understand, again, in that concept of kind of cosmic geography, the wilderness, the two places, you know, probably above anything else were considered to be the place of the demons and the place of of sin and and the unclean. The wilderness and and the deep. And and the ancient mind, not just the Israelites, but but also the Israelites. The the wilderness and the deep were the place of demons. It it was the place of sin. It was the place where evil resided. So, So Jesus is being driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness, into the place of of evil, to be confronted. I want to read something here uh, about this for you in uh, Dr. Heiser's book, Unseen Realm. It says, we've seen this in one particular instance. Conceptually, the wilderness was where Israelites believed desert demons, including Azazel, lived. Talk about Azazel in a second. The Azazel material is especially telling since, as I noted in an earlier discussion, Jewish practice of the Day of Aton- Atonement ritual in Jesus' day included driving the goat for Azazel into the desert outside Jerusalem and pushing it over a cliff so it could not return. The wilderness was a place associated with the demonic, so it is no surprise that this is where Jesus meets the devil. This is all on purpose. This this would have been clearly understood by the people of the day. Think back to the Day of Atonement. They would take two goats and they would cast lots, and one, the lot would fall for Yahweh, and that would be the goat that was sacrificed for the sins of the people. The other goat was called the goat for Azazel, okay? And, and, And we call it the scapegoat. And they placed their hands upon it symbolically to transfer the sins of Israel onto that goat, and they would send the goat out into the wilderness. And we know things from like other Jewish writings that what they would usually do is they'd have somebody that would kind of follow along with it. When it get to a certain place, they'd shove it over a cliff. They'd, they'd, they killed it they, because they didn't want the sins to ever come back into the camp. That was the idea. So why are they doing this? Well, first thing you have to understand, they're not making a sacrifice to Azazel. Well, I guess first thing you have to understand is what they thought Azazel was. In Second Temple Jewish writing, Azazel was seen as, as a demon. I mean, that's completely clear. It's, it's in the, 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 the writing of the Jewish people leading up to the time of Christ. That's how they viewed Azazel. In fact, that's why some scholars see Azazel as another name for Satan. Sometimes you'll see you know, that listed as a, another, as an alternative name for Satan. In 1 Enoch, which speaks of the, the watchers and the sons of God, uh, Azazel was considered to be the one who led the rebellion in the time of Noah uh, to you know, meet, you know, meet with the, the women of men. You know, and, and so uh, Azazel was seen by the Jewish people as, as a demon. So the first thing you have to understand is God's not sacrificing the demon. He's not, he's not sending a, like a sacrifice. This is not the ransom theory. Some scholars look at it like that. Well, the, you know, some see the death of Christ as a ransom to Satan. I, I don't, there's ransom language there, but it's, I don't think that's particularly accurate. Uh, you know, it, it, it is not a, a ransom to Satan. It's a, it's a satisfaction to the, the anger and the righteousness of God is what it is. So why is he sending the sins out into the desert? Because that's where the sins belong. That was the place of the sins. That was the place of evil. That was the place of the demons. And that's where the sins of the people should go, out into that place. That was the idea. They would go out into there and be killed there so they could never come back into the, to the, to the, the holy place of the people, the place that Yahweh was. You guys get the concept? That idea of sacred geography again. So we see kind of visuals of that coming up in in Jesus here. Behold, the lamb will take away the sins of the world. And now all of a sudden, the lamb that will carry all those sins, where do you see him going? Right into the wilderness, led by the Spirit of God, and confronts Satan himself. I want you to notice something. This This is not Satan's doing. This is Christ's doing. He is laying siege to Satan. He is going after him. We tend to think so much of Jesus as the peaceful and meek Jesus. Well, he was to human beings. He came to die for them. He wasn't to the unseen realm. He is aggressive and and attacking Satan and and what Satan is doing. And he goes out to meet him in the wilderness. And Satan tempts him three times. And the temptations are, are, are... very interesting, very, very unique. Um, I, I want to, uh, let me read something here from, from Dr. Heiser first, uh, and, and then we'll take a look at the verses here that, that are spoken of in The Temptations. First, I want to read a quote that that Heiser puts in his book by R.T. France. Uh, he, he's a well-known Old Testament scholar, and this is uh uh, this is from the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. France writes this. He said, The most significant key to understanding of this story is to be found in, G- in Jesus' three scriptural quotations. All come from Deuteronomy 6 through 8, the part of Moses' address to the Israelites before their entry into Canaan, in which he reminds them of their 40 years of wilderness experiences. It has been a time of preparation and of proving the faithfulness of their God. He has deliberately put them through a time of privation as an educative process. They have been learning or should have been learning what it means to live in trusting obedience to God. Now another son is in the wilderness, this time for 40 days rather than 40 years as a preparation for entering into his divine calling. There in the wilderness, he too faces these same tests and he has learned the lessons which Israel had so imperfectly grasped. His father is testing him in the school of privation and his triumphant triumphant rebuttal of the devil's suggestions will ensure that the filial bond can survive in spite of the conflict that lies ahead. Israel's occupation of of the promised land was at best a flawed fulfillment of the hopes with which they came to the Jordan. But this new son will not fail, and the new exodus, to which we have seen a number of allusions in chapter 2, will succeed. Where Israel of old stumbled and fell, Christ, the new Israel, stood firm. The story of the testing in the wilderness is thus an elaborate typological presentation of Jesus as himself, the true Israel, the, the son of God, through whom God's redemptive purpose for his people is now at last to reach its fulfillment. That's the picture. See, so many times we read that story and say, well, I, why did God do that? And, and why did Jesus use those particular verses? Like, I don't get it. That's the picture. You know, it, it, this is on purpose. This is, this is, is God kind of teaching a, a typological lesson through his son that this is the one and he can do this. Where Israel has failed, he will not fail. He will complete the task. Let's look at the things that, that that are said. The first thing Satan does is, is he, he tempts him with food. Jesus, kept, you know, stayed out there until he was hungry, just like Israel did in the wilderness. Okay, remember the story of Israel in the wilderness and how they longed for food, and God provided them food. Well, what does Jesus say when he's tempted with hunger? If you look at, at Deuteronomy eight one through three, and if you want to. You know, just listen and go back there later, you can. It says, Be care, and I wanna quote more than what Jesus quotes, because we only get a snippet of it, and we don't, that's all we go most of the time. We don't go any deeper. The, 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 a snippet was enough for the Jewish people because they already knew the passages. You know, so this is where we have to dig more because we're, we're removed from it. Look at what Jesus says. Be careful to obey all the commands I have given you today. Then you will live and multiply and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors. You know, this is speaking to the the Jewish people right before they go into the promised land. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness these 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, rather we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what Jesus quoted to Satan. You get the picture more when you get the you know all 3 of the verses. Just like God took Israel through the promised land to teach them a lesson, he even let them purposely get hungry so he could teach them to to trust him and that he would provide for them, but they never got the concept. And now Satan comes before Jesus when, when Jesus is hungry, when Jesus has been 40 days in the wilderness, and Satan comes before him and he says, make food out of those rocks, make bread out of them. And Jesus said, what's wrong with you? Don't you know that my father... Will take care of me that's what he's really saying that's why he quotes this verse strike one against satan jesus wins that battle hands down second temptation he you know he, he goes to, to jesus and, and, and he says cast yourself down cast yourself down the, the angels will take care of you They won't let let anything happen to you. Cast yourself down, Jesus. Basically, prove who you are. Prove to me who you are. Let me see the show. You know, that's kind of what he's he's saying. Look at Deuteronomy 6. And I want to look at verses 14 through 18. This is what Jesus says to him. You must not worship any of the gods of neighboring nations. Don't you love how that begins? Who's the god of the neighboring nations? Of all those of all the lost, Satan is. And, and Jesus says to him, shouldn't I you know, I don't worship you. I don't need to show you anything. For the Lord your God who lives among you is a jealous God. Who who by the way is Jesus? He's Yahweh. He's the Lord. He's basically, I'm a jealous God. I don't need to show you anything, Satan. I know your tricks. I know who you are. His anger will flare up against you and he will wipe you from the face of the earth. You must not test the Lord your God as you did when you came, when you complained at at Massa. That's when they were looking for water, by the way. And Jesus is in the desert, also does not have water. And he points out to Satan, he, he, uh, it's almost like saying, hey, just in case you wanted to try that one, that won't work either. You know, Don't be like, like you know, with the, the people when they, they complained at, at Massa. You must diligently obey the commands of the Lord your God, all the laws and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so all will go well with you. Then you will enter and occupy the, the good land that the Lord swore to give to your, your ancestors. That's what Jesus throws back at Satan. Strike two, Satan. And finally, Satan just comes right out and he kinda gets to the point of what he wants. He said, look, just bow down to me and I'll give you all this. I- I'll give it all to you. I- I'll give all the, the, uh, of, of my kingdom to you, Jesus, if you just bow down to me. Look at verses 13 through 15. We already read the, the first two says, you must fear the Lord your God and serve him when you take an oath. You must, only, uh, you must use uh, only his name. You must not worship any of the other gods of the neighboring nations. For the Lord your God who lives among you is a jealous God. His anger will flare up against you and he will wipe you from the face of the earth. That is Jesus' response. Let me read uh, kind of Dr. Heiser's assessment of, of this uh, here. He says, The ultimate temptation comes last and it hits directly at Jesus' ultimate mission to reclaim the nations that are rightfully Yahweh's. Then he quotes the the passage that Satan says, I'll give you all all of this. Satan offered Jesus the nations that had been disinherited by Yahweh at Babel. Coming from the ruler of this world, the author was not a hollow one. As the original rebel, the Nakash, Uh, had by New Testament times achieved the status of the lead opposition to Yahweh. This was part of the logical attributing to the term Satan to him as a proper uh, name. Remember I told you in the Old Testament it's a title. But by the time you get to the New Testament, it's a title that is seen as as an actual name. You know, he is not just the accuser, he now is the accuser. it's, It's now his name. Recall as well as uh, that the Nakash, the serpent, has been cast down to the Eretz, the earth, a term that referred not only to the earth but also to the realm of the dead, Sheol. The original rebel whose domain became the earth and Sheol, the serpent slash Satan, was perceived by Second Temple and New Testament theology as primary, as primary authority over all other rebels and their domains. In fact, he is called the, 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 the prince of the demons. You know, by that time, that's how he is seen. He rules their world. Consequently, his lordship over the gods who ruled the nations in Deuteronomy 32 uh, worldview of the Old Testament is presumed. Had Jesus given in, it would have been an acknowledgement that Satan's permission was needed to possess the nations. It wasn't. Satan presumed power and ownership over something that ultimately was not his but God's. The messaging behind Jesus' answer is clear. Yahweh will take the nations back by his own means in his own time. He doesn't need them to be given away in a bargain. Jesus was loyal to his Father. Remember the, the verses stress, obey everything that God has told you. What did Jesus always say about himself? I obey what the Father says. I do what the Father says. Since uh, since reclaiming the nations was connected with salvation and redemption from the effects of the fall in Eden, accepting Satan's offer would have undermined the necessity of the atonement of the cross. Jesus understood that, and he defeated Satan that moment. But Jesus did that on his own. The Spirit took him into the wilderness. This was not an attack by Satan on Jesus. This was an attack by Jesus on Satan. He went to his realm, put a flag in the ground, and said, let's go. And one hands down. And it's not the only time he's going to do that. I want you real quickly to turn over to Matthew chapter 8. And I'm just picking a few instances here. Um, You know, there are more. And like I said, we're going to turn this into like a two-part Class, because there's just not enough time today to deal with these. And honestly, I've been looking forward to these this entire study because this is, I think, the funnest part of this entire kind of concept. It's it's you know it it moving from the Old Testament to the New, and and moving from you know kind of conceptual and theory to practice. It, It is Jesus taking on the forces of darkness. I want want us to to quickly look at three miracles in a row. And these three miracles, and every scholar I've ever read, every New Testament scholar I've ever read is in agreement on what these are showing. They are showing the authority that Jesus has. The authority and the right and the power that Jesus has. And he's showing it here over essentially the entire realm of Satan. I I wanna begin in, in, in verse 23 uh, and we're going to go 23, and then we'll end in, in uh, verse 8 of chapter 9. And there's three brief stories here. So let's look at 23 first. And this is going to be very familiar to you. Okay, this is very familiar, this is a Sunday school story from, from probably from your youth. It says, Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. He's on the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Galilee, or the Lake of Gennesaret. Okay, and he starts out on on kind of the Israel side, on, on the west side, and he's going to cross the lake. Okay? Now, the Sea of Galilee, these disciples have lived and worked on this inland sea, this great big lake. They they've done this their whole life. They're seasoned sailors, they're fishermen for a living. That's what the majority of them do. They are used to to this lake. For the most part, Galilee is a very calm, very temperate lake. There are times, particularly because it's on the east and west side, it's ranged by mountains, and there are times when kind of an east wind can come over top of the mountains and blow down onto the lake and cause like really terrible sudden storms. And that could be what's happening here, but it probably doesn't really explain it in its entirety. and and, and many New Testament scholars point that out, that this is probably a supernatural storm more so than it is just a sudden storm that blew up, just by the nature of it. Let's continue on. Suddenly, notice, suddenly, it happens very quickly. Now that can happen, but again, as we go through this, we're gonna see that's probably not likely what is going on. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. He's not concerned at all. He's stretched out and he's sleeping in the boat. And these were big boats, by the way. They could be run by by a crew of like up to 15 and there was room in it to stretch out and sleep, okay? (coughs) So Jesus is stretched out sleeping. The disciples, now remember, most of them are fishermen. They went over to him and woke him up shouting, Lord, save us, we are going to drown. Now they've lived on that lake, they've worked there for, for years decades, and they are that afraid. I've been 40 miles out on the ocean in, in a boat with waves coming, uh, you know, we would drop down in a swell and the waves would be higher than the boat, on, uh, you know, at the top of the swell. I've never, I don't think I've ever been so sick in my life. You, you imagine, you know, uh, imagine ha- having vertigo, like, for 12 straight hours, basically. That's kind of what it was like. It was miserable. It was the worst sick of my life. I, I remember laying there thinking, Lord, if, if you take me right now, I really don't care. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I can die right now. I'm, I'm just fine. You know, I mean, it was horrible. Those guys running that boat, they were professional tuna fishermen. You know, they're eating stuff and they're like, you know, walking around. And, and I mean, it not, meant nothing to them. You know, meant nothing to them. These guys are scared for their life. They're shouting at Jesus. Probably had to shout to get over the the sound of the wind and the storm. But they're also shouting because they're excited. And they wake Jesus up and they say, "We're gonna die." Now, one, it shows the the kind, and this is early in the ministry, so it shows kind of the beginning nature of their faith. They know there's something about Jesus that. Is, 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 is powerful, and he can help somehow. But you're gonna see as we go through the next couple of verses, they don't really understand fully how or just how powerful he is. They don't really quite get it. But they wake him up. We're gonna drown. Jesus responded, why are you afraid? Why have uh, you have such, such little faith? I, I, hey, I got news for you. I'd be right with him. I'd be jumping up and down. Jesus, Jesus, help us. You know, that's where I'd be. Then he got up and rebuked, rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was great calm. You know, storms at sea don't end that way. Natural storms just do not end that way. But this is someone far different here. He literally rebukes that, you know, he doesn't just say, hey, stop. He rebukes the wind and the waves. A rebuke, it, it, you know, it, it's like what you do when something, is, it, you know, someone is doing something they are not supposed to be. It's one of the reasons many New Testament scholars see this as, as a spiritual moment. Because he didn't just say stop, he rebuked them. He said, you must stop. This is wrong, stop. And what happens? Instantly, everything calms. You know, when I was out there in, in that ocean that time, a hurricane had gone through several days before that. That's how rough the ocean was after a hurricane had been through two or three days before. You know, the, the sailors said, this is as rough as it'll be and we'll still take people out to fish. I wish they'd made another decision. I'm just telling you. That was like three days later. Storms just don't end like this. And you can see that in the reaction. The disciples were amazed, who is this man? They asked, even the winds and the waves obey him. You know, they knew he was something special. They were kind of leaning toward the Messiah, but they didn't really understand what that all meant. And now they've seen that he has control over the winds and the waves. And now they're realizing, oh my goodness, who is he? What is he? I've never seen anything like this. All right, they cross over the sea. They, they get to the other side of the lake. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake, in the region of the Gadarenes, and, and some of you might have the Gergesenes, it's the same place. It's part of an, a, 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 a region called the Decapolis, which was 10 pagan cities that were over there. This is Gentile territory. This is pagan territory. Okay? Jesus, again, going into the teeth of the enemy. And you're going to notice, he basically crossed over this lake just to do this. You know, so he crosses over, he comes to the region of the Gadarenes. Two men who were possessed by demons met him. They come out to meet him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through the area. So, you know, they're used to, you know, they're possessed and they control this little realm. You know that concept of realm distinction? They wouldn't let anybody come through there. They would violently attack them. And they see Jesus and the disciples come and they out they come. (laughs) Haha, we're gonna get them. Uh Uh-oh. Mistake. They began screaming at him. Why are you interfering with us, son of God? Isn't that a fascinating concept, son of God? Why are you interfering with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? They know that they're defeated in the end. They know who he is. They're like, hey, you're not supposed to be here this quick. Why, why are you doing this? Why, why don't you just leave us alone? There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance, so the demons begged, if you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. All right, go. That's what Jesus says to them All right, go. Jesus commanded them, so the demons came out of the men, entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the heat steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Now, who are the only people that got drowned that day? The pigs that had the demons in them. The plan had been to drown Jesus and the disciples, but who's the one that ended up getting drowned? Wasn't Jesus. Who has control here? Jesus does. Who's the one who has authority? Jesus does. And he is putting it right in the face of Satan. On purpose. Putting it right in his face. Moving fast. But, but, you know, we see the herdsmen are scared. They they fled to the nearby town telling everyone what what happened to the demon-possessed men. You thought they would have been happy. You know, we're finally rid of those guys. Then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but begged him to go away and leave them alone. Yep, isn't that interesting? Again, it just shows the rebellion of mankind against against God. They didn't want any parts of this. That was just way too scary for them, as if the demons weren't scary enough. Look at verses one through eight of chapter nine. So Jesus climbs back into the boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, be encouraged my child, your sins are forgiven. Again, very famous story. He doesn't tell him you're healed. Tells him your sins are forgiven. Now it could be that his paralysis was because of his sin. Some believe that, but that's not necessarily the case. This is more provocative on Jesus' part. He's doing this for a reason. He's showing people who he is and what authority he has. So he says, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law said to themselves, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Yeah. Yes, that's the answer. That's, That's the obvious answer, yes. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to stand up, and, or, or, or stand up and walk? Which is easier to say? You know? I mean, you can say them both, but if you say to somebody, stand up and walk, and they don't, it pretty much proves that you're a fraud. I can go to somebody and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Doesn't mean a thing, but how, how's anybody going to know that? You know, you don't know if I have the authority to do that or not. Now, how do they know Jesus has the authority to? Because well, he's going to show them. He's about to show them. Which is easier, say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority to forget, to, on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen, and they praised God Forgiving human, uh, for giving humans such authority. Isn't that interesting? They became afraid. They praised God, but they just didn't still quite understand what they just saw. But this is again Jesus planting a flag. Jesus walking straight into the teeth of the enemy and saying, Here I am. And I'll show you what I can do. Let's go, Satan. Let's fight. Again, Jesus wins, hands down. The last thing, and we're going to have to move very quickly on this, where we get the title of today's message, Laying Siege to the Gates of Hell. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Famous, very famous story where Jesus goes with the disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. (coughs) I want to read the story, and then we'll we'll go back and we'll talk about it. Starting at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that, that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. So, you know, they're all great things, but none of them are really the right thing. You know, humanly, that would be very flattering, but it, it, it's not going to take it. You know, it just, it's not the right thing. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, or you are the Christ. I mean the same thing. You know, one is, is, is you know, Hebrew, one is, is Greek. The son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church in all the power of hell, or most of you have literally the gates of hell will not conquer it. Now I, I want to stop right there for our purpose today, that's really all the further we we need to go. You know, this is one of the most famous passages in the Bible because this is the this is the passage where like Catholics get the idea that, that Peter was the first Pope and 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 then you know his successors would, would get would become Pope. Because there's word play involved here. Peter's name means rock. You know, and, and, and Jesus says, On this rock I will build build my church. Okay, so what rock is it talking about here? Some say well it's talking about you know, Peter, some say it's talking about the profession of faith that Peter has just made on that rock he will build the church. There's a little bit of truth actually to both because Jesus is certainly signaling out Peter and he's about to tell him he will give him the keys to the kingdom. So it's definitely a signaling out of Peter, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Peter is, like, is, is anything like the first pope. There's also, you know, this confession of faith is what the church will be built upon. There's far more going on in this story. <clears throat> Caesarea Philippi was known as as kind of the gates to the underworld. It was a center for the worship of of Pan. It was a center for the worship uh, of Zeus. Some have connected it to the worship of Baal. In the background of Caesarea Philippi was Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the biggest mountain in Israel, nearly 9,000 feet of this janet, A a giant like like granite edifice. That is the backdrop to the place Jesus is standing and saying, Who do men say I am? A giant rock. An enormous giant rock. By the way, what you know you know where first Enoch has the sons of God coming and landing when they came down to cohabitat with the daughters of men? Mount Hermon. Right there. That's the place. It was seen as evil. Caesarea Philippi and Mount Hermon were seen as evil by the Jewish people. And that's where Jesus takes his disciples, takes them right up against that rock and says, who do people say that I am? They get all these other answers. He's like, who do you say? Well, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. He says, well done, Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are interesting. We, well, let me actually read Dr. Heiser's words on this. He will say it much more clearly than, than me. Um, he quotes here, uh, well, let me just read this whole section. Things hadn't changed much by Jesus' day, at least in terms of spiritual control. You may have noticed on these maps, and he's got some maps in here, that Caesarea Philippi, was also called Paneus, which, which comes from Pan, you know, from the worship of Pan. The site was famous in the ancient world as a center for the worship of Pan and for the temple of the high god Zeus, considered in Jesus' day to be the incarnate in, in Caesar Augustus. And he quotes here a, 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 an archaeologist, Rami a- 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 Arav. He says, more than 20 temples have been surveyed on Mount Hermon and its environs. This is an unprecedented number in comparison with, the, with other regions in the Phoenician coast. They appear to be the ancient cult sites of the, of, of the Mount Hermon population and represent the Canaanite Phoenician concept of open-air cult centers dedicated, and notice this, uh, dedicated evidently to the celestial gods, to the gods of, 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 the, of the, the stars, of the mountains. That's where the sons of God came down over 20 cult sites have been found on Mount Hermon alone which is staggering the reference to the to the in the quotation to celestial gods takes our minds back to the host of heaven the sons of god who were put in authority over the the nations at babel who were not to be worshiped by the israelites the basis for catholicism's contention that the church is built on peter's leadership is that his name means stone For sure, there is wordplay going on in Peter's confession, but I would suggest there is also an important double entendre. The rock refers to the mountain location where Jesus makes the statement. When reviewed from this perspective, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, at this rock, this mountain, Mount Hermon. Why? This place was considered the gates of hell, the gateway to the realm of the dead in Old Testament times. Theological messaging couldn't be more dramatic. Jesus says He will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this—and get this—this is important. We often think of this phrase as God's people are in a posture of having to bravely fend off Satan and his demons. Isn't that how we think of the gates of hell? The church will—you know—will—you know—will not be defeated by the gates of hell. This simply isn't correct. Gates are defensive structures, not offensive weapons. The kingdom of God is the aggressor. That's what's happening. Jesus begins at ground zero in the cosmic geography of both Testaments to announce the great reversal. It is the gates of hell that are under assault. And they will not hold up against the church. Hell will one day be Satan's tomb. That's what's going on here. This is spiritual warfare, it is, it is as strong and powerful as it gets. Jesus literally taking the disciples to the gates of hell and say, you really want to know who I am? Who do they say I am? Oh, a prophet, all these wonderful things. Who do you say? The Christ, the son of the living God. Bingo, watch what I'm going to do. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church that I'm going to build. We're going to take it down. Jesus lays siege to the gates of hell. There's an interesting thing I want to close with about this region. It was also called Bashan in the Old Testament. The king of Bashan was a man named Og. As the Jewish people were coming to the promised land, they they passed through uh, the, the, the realm of Og and Sihon, the Amorite kings. They were both considered giants, by the way. And they destroyed them both. Everybody else, you know, the, the Edomites, like, who were their cousins, they let them go. They let them go through. But when they came to the Amorite kings, they opposed them, and God ha- gave them into their hands both times and destroyed those two giants who were kings. Bashan, and, 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 and U- in Ugaritic language, which is just to the north of, of, of Israel that we talked about a few, a few mo- weeks ago, Bashan is Bethan. It's, it, it, the names are almost exactly the same. You know what they mean? The place of the serpent. That's the name of the place. The serpent's place. It goes back to the to, to the garden. This was the place of the serpent. In three weeks, Mark is going to have the class the next two weeks, and he's going to do some great things, so please show up and give him all your support. In three weeks, I'm going to come back, and we're going to close this, this idea of Jesus put, laying siege to the gates of hell. We're going to see that it, at, it, it, in, if you go back to Psalm 22, which is not originally seen as messianic, but it is since the New Testament because the writers connect it to Jesus. And one of the things that, that the writer says, that I'm surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. Part of it talks about what Jesus spoke When he was on the cross, when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's from Psalm 22. And he's surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. He's doing spiritual battle right to the time of his death. He's fighting a spiritual fight. Surrounded by the the people of the serpent. It's a spiritual war, folks. It's a holy war, the life of Christ. When he rises from the dead, and the last time you see him, he's riding on the clouds. And we're told that when he comes again, he will come on the clouds. You know there was another cloud rider in the ancient world, understood by all the ancient peoples around Israel as the cloud rider. You know who that was? Baal. Baal was a cloud rider. But yet time and time again in the Old Testament, the future Messiah is seen as the one who would ride the clouds. God is the one who rides the clouds. It is a taking back of what belongs to God. It's spiritual warfare. In Daniel, where the yeah you know, we 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 see Jesus as the Son of Man, it said, "And one it came on the clouds." It's all on purpose, folks. It's all on purpose. And Jesus is going to fight that battle to the end, even in between his death and resurrection, he's fighting a spiritual battle. We're going to look at that. So that'll be in three weeks. So. I'll see, you. I'll see you then. You know, uh, like I said, pay attention to Mark. He's going to do some great stuff, all right? Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, well, I just thank you for who you are. Um, you're awesome, God. And every once in a while, we kind of get a glimpse of that if we really pay attention to your word. Help us to really pay attention more often uh, and, and just see how amazing you are because it just, practically drips off the pages constantly. Uh, there's just so much we miss. Help us to make the connections. Help us to, to look hard and, and, and really want to know you in all your glory. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what it means that you have been faithful to us here for 100 years. In a day where we talk about your faithfulness, it, it's, it's great to look at how you've been faithful ever since the beginning. Father, we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done, and we just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.